The battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome back to the Leap Pursuit Podcast. Well, we keep drafting more people to talk about Blood Red Skies, hoping that sooner or later we'll find something interesting to the rest of the gaming group. I think we have that tonight. Tonight, we're going to talk to Steve Toth, who you've probably seen all around the ready room, whether it's talking about models, making fun of me, or talking about the cheats that he calls tactics. Well, well, we won't quite go there yet. Steve, how are you doing tonight? Hey, we're doing good. Uh, glad to be on. Glad that we got you on. It's good to talk to you. The good news is we also have your hetero life partner, Brett, who's on here. Brett, how are you doing? <laughs> good. <laughs> Well, you know, you guys have been working hard together and I appreciate it. I'm I'm just sort of jealous and, and sort of feeling left out because you've been spending so much time together. And we'll talk about that uh, later on. But I wanted to have both of you here to, to discuss some of the things that we've seen uh, around the ready room and around the internet as we're getting ready for some more Blood Red Skies. But before we go to that, I want to talk a little bit about Gathering of Eagles. We're still on uh, for 4 through 6 September in Indianapolis at the Hilton Garden Inn there at the Indianapolis airport. So yes, you don't even need a rental car. You can get a shuttle to come over and see us. But we'll be doing some gaming. We'll have some seminars. Uh, we'll have some more gaming and we'll have a couple vendors there. And unfortunately, we'll have John Russell there. So I'll, I'll apologize ahead of time to everybody. But the pusher and the rest of us uh, should have a good time. We'll play some Blood Red Skies, hang out, drink some beer, not in the bar, since that will probably be closed, uh, and uh, generally have a good time. Now, the schedule should be online by the time this episode drops. If it isn't, I'll blame Chris. He's on vacation this week. So since he's not here to defend himself, it's all his fault. Uh, but hopefully our schedule will be up soon. It'll look a lot like the virtual gathering of Eagles. Same kind of layout. A little bit of time for uh, Andy and everybody to do a welcome aboard and then for us to split off, do some gaming, do some seminars, and generally have a good weekend. Now, let's talk a little bit about what we've seen that's coming out from Warlord. You know, I, I talked about last week that their entire schedule had pretty much gone to shit. I don't know how to say it any nicer way. The, the release schedule is is just, it's a lost art. Well, I, I get on the internet and all of a sudden, the first thing that's being promoted to me is the Mariana and Palau Islands expansion. Brett, did you see that one coming? Yeah, I saw that and I was a little confused because I was... I thought Midway was going <laughs> to. I'm what so happened? confused. You know, we're only like you know a year and a half, two years apart between the the two different World War II events. Um, I'm I'm so confused. But then, you know that's all right. I I rely on Warlord Games to center me historically. So I went over there and I clicked on the Mariana and Palau Islands campaign and said, "Well, let's see what they have to say. What's what's in this campaign?" And I will quote: "Even whilst the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy, U.S. forces were beginning to sweep across the Pacific." in their own blitzkrieg, fighting embittered and ferocious battles across tiny strips of land against tenacious Japanese defenders. I think the last word I'd use to describe the island hopping campaign is a blitzkrieg. <laughs> Not exactly anything lightning fast about it. But hey, that's all right. Must be the British view of things. Uh, the good news is uh, there's going to be a lot of cool bolt-action stuff in it. Uh, the bad news is, for those of us that like to play bolt action in concert with our Blood Red Skies, yeah, we don't even have any of the aircraft yet that are supposed to be for that time period. Much less, we don't even have Midway. So so we we like have Corsairs for the end and Wildcats for the beginning of the war. I, I think we're kind of lost somewhere in between. Thanks, Warlord. That's all right. We'll solve those problems. I, I got all excited because I saw it. I said, oh, man, campaign, Pacific Theater. You know, I was thinking maybe there was going to be some new release and maybe even <laughs> something like Sandstorm, but with a Pacific spin on it that I could download. I don't know. So I, I click I click into it and it says Airstrike. I'm like, OK, I got, I got Airstrike. Now what? 
and they were like, have a good day. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> well, I, did, did I miss something? I don't know. The other funny thing is if you're, you know, if you know your history about the, uh, the, the Mariana's Turkey shoot, I'm thinking, this is awesome. I've got aircraft for that. Oh wait, no, I don't have any Hellcats. And, and no, I don't have anything for the airstrike scenarios. Cause I, I certainly don't have any Avengers and I, I, I definitely don't have any hell divers. Hey, there, there was going to be a, there's a couple Dauntlesses there. So, so we have a beta card for a Dauntless. <laughs> well, never fear. By the time this episode drops, at least for the U.S. aircraft, uh, we will have some ready room uh, lead pursuit cards out there to cover those. Uh, the Japanese aircraft, I realize that the B6N is only one number higher than the B5N, um, but a couple mods there to the stats uh, for that uh, later variant of the Japanese torpedo bombers. Uh, and we'll work our way through it. So once again, I'm reacting to the Warlord schedule. My mind was all on Midway, and now I have to think about mid to late war aircraft. No problem. I'm not, I'm not mad. I just got excited. I thought, you know, the, the way it was presented, I thought, oh, wow, this is exciting. It's something new. I, I, I'm just mad because I've had to totally upend everything that I thought I was working on. So damn you, Warlord. Um, and I really wish I was able to buy their models in resin for the F6F Hellcat that we need for it. But that's all right. Uh, that'll be coming along shortly. So maybe that means that the, that the Hellcat's next in the Blood Red Skies release schedule. I don't want to read too much into the tea leaves, but uh, but that's kind of what I'm hoping. Uh, some of the other things that came out. So if you're still doing European theater and you're doing things like Malta, Brigade Models just released some more of their one 1,000th uh, Pico Armor uh, scaled buildings. They gave some port facilities, some industrial facilities. Uh, if you want to go take a look at those or if you're doing... Uh, age of sale stuff they have some forts and other cool things uh, that you can that you can use there for your miniature games but other than that i haven't seen a whole lot that i want to put stock in for release schedules or anything else like that brett steve have you seen anything on the release uh, window for warlord uh just that it's uh keeps to be changing every day it seems huh yeah exactly you you know you want it to change just wait five minutes something new will come up well, okay, and hopefully everyone hears the thunder in the background. Uh, i got a lovely rainstorm here in Alabama, so we'll see if, uh, if I can make it through the podcast without losing power. All right, so let's talk about a couple things we've seen in the ready room, uh, some new gear and some, uh, some new things coming out. Steve, you're working on a widget to try to help some of us adapt our AIM models. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. It's just, uh, you know, that post on the bottom, it always seems to be an issue. So it came up with a kind of simple solution, I think, just uh, – two drill bits and a little piece that'll pop into one of those holes that you can just glue in with some super glue and it should give you a nice flush bottom to your aim model uh, that'll fit right on that triangle on the top of the flight stand so so it's not quite as cumbersome as the ball bearings in the cups or that clear hawk widget and it just gives you you know it gives you that nice flush bottom and uh makes them a little easier to store and stuff also when they're not on the flight stand yeah, absolutely. I know I've used some of the models with the Hawk widget adapter and it, you know, it, it's nice. It does work, but it gives you this, you know, half inch little block on the bottom of your models. It's a little ungainly. So that'll be good to see. I, uh, Brett, I, was, have... I was never doing anything different than just using the magnets that you can get from Dave at AIM. And now all of a sudden I feel like totally inadequate with all my models on display. I got to go back. <laughs> Which you should. Of course, you should redo all of the way that they're displayed now. Nice right. work. Well, I think my future models, I'll, I'll do this way. So I'm, I'm excited to see what's coming from Steve. I will say that cup and magnet really does give a cool effect, you know, when you're playing the game that you can actually bank it and twist it like that. So I was almost kind of thinking about doing something maybe where you could put that magnet in flush against it, but uh, we'll see. Maybe that'll be down the road because I do definitely like that effect of the different attitudes you can put the aircraft at. Yeah, it's it's thoroughly useless in game terms other than pitching up and down for advantage, disadvantage, but I, I like it too. I, that's that's why I've modified a bunch of mine to do that. Um, but I will admit I'd, I'd rather not have to scrape it out and stick half of a ball bearing in there every time. <laughs> that approach is pretty practical, though, for heavier models that you really can't tilt the entire flight stand. If you could just tilt the aircraft on a ball bearing. Well, yeah, so, so a great example of that is the Phantom. I mean, talking to... Uh, uh, Roger, <laughs> if I can speak today, um, talking to Roger Garish, uh, he was saying that uh, the Phantoms just don't pivot well 
uh, on an advantage stand forward and back, just because such a big airplane. It's it's like taking your large multi-engine bomber and pivoting it forward and back. So I think some of these are going to adapt well to a ball bearing, at least for now, until we figure out what we're doing for uh, Blood Red Skies Vietnam, which probably is not my problem. Someone at Warlord will figure that out. Okay, one of the other things we saw was a couple people had uploaded uh, large image files so that people could go print off their own maps. That looks pretty good. Looks like there's a couple new options uh, for a variety of different locations where people can go in, download the files, uh, and then go send that to Deep Cut Studio or whoever your local map producer is, or just even have it printed off uh, in a large paper format and just throw that uh, down on the board if you want to game over some imagery. Uh, although I know, Brett, uh, you and I have been pretty sold on on the work that Deep Cuts has put out for us. Yeah, they've done some great work. And, and uh, I mean, that Malta mat has been just – it's just fantastic to look at and the work they did on it. So Yeah, there's a, there's a fine line for me between that level of effort and something I can go click and do off the shelf. So I totally understand why people uh, want the ability to be able to go out there and uh, just print something off or just send a file off to Deep Cuts and – and get a map printed and brought back because there's a lot of effort that went into that Malta map, which we are going to show the Malta map at Gathering of Eagles uh, in person. So we'll have at least one, if not two copies of it there. Uh, if you would like a copy of that map, it's pretty easy to order. You can just go straight onto the Lead Pursuit website, click on our store, and then go through and order a mat. It's pretty much uh, flat, about uh, $20 shipping uh, anywhere in the world. And uh, we'll get that uh, sent out from the guys at Deep Cut who do all of our uh, custom uh, map work for us. So if you want one of them, uh, we can do it in 4 by 8 That's our standard size. If you want something different, if you want it 4 by 4 if you want it 4 by 6 just let us know and we can get you a custom quote for that. But, you know, I think it's a pretty cool map. I'm looking forward to playing a couple games on that uh, during Gathering of Eagles. I'm curious uh, where you guys stand on the on the mat type thing, because uh, I I have a couple of them now, and some of them I, I generally don't more. stand on my mats. That's usually <laughs> bad form; it gets them dirty. Oh, that's not the question you're asking. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Some of them have like a more artistic, almost cart. I don't want to say cartoony, but I guess a more artistic style. And some of them look more like they're straight up like Google Earth photograph style. And I go back and forth from which one I like. So I'd be curious, you know, what what your guys' take is on that. Brett, what do you think of uh, of the two styles? Uh, you know, I haven't. Well, the stylized kinds I've seen have been I've seen more for like tabletop miniature games that are like fantasy games or like your generic like I don't know forty k kind of game. And I think they're awesome. I mean, of course, I think that's where we all first saw mats these, especially the neoprene ones, in application, right? Uh, but for BRS, so far I've been most impressed by the ones that have. Uh, you know, kind of have that photorealism, if you will, of, of an actual, you know, countryside or whatever it might be that almost looks to scale for the games we're playing. That's what I've been drawn to. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of split uh, on a, a couple of them because I think some things translate well, uh, like Malta, where you've got fields and urban areas that translate really well into the Google uh, imagery kind of thing that then has been, I'll use the term, I guess, redacted and modified and, and taken back you know, 60, 70 years. Uh, but the, uh, the there are some scenery-type games that or uh, game mats that look really cool, like some of the kind of Arctic wasteland ones or the desert ones that I think stylized, they look better than overhead imagery would. Because, uh, you know, if you find some section of the Empty Quarter of, or of the uh, uh, any one of the other desert areas, the Gobi or whatever, and it's going to just be blank area and it's all going to look the same whereas at least the guys that have gone out and stylized uh, some of those mats I've looked at a couple fantasy desert ones that are pretty cool because they'll have some highlands kind of painted into some areas and some open sand wastes um, I, I think a lot of it's personal preference too I mean uh, if if we get down to the point that counting rivets isn't enough that we're going to start judging people on their mats then <laughs> holy crap oh, yeah. absolutely. I mean hey whatever works I mean Oh yeah, you know, that, that's just a, an added plus. I mean, it, playing on a bare table will work, of course, uh, and it's just kind of a cool visual. And I, I see what you're getting at with a maybe a what would otherwise be a more featureless terrain. 
that just about anything could yeah, work for that. Yeah, because I've looked at some that are actually, quote, scaled for 40K. And I guess if you looked at them with blood red skies, and Steve, you've probably seen some of these that you'd say, hey, the rocks and the trees and the bushes don't look like <laughs> the right scale for, for one 200th level airplanes. I'm like, I don't care. It just looks like, like a cool, wintry, rugged, you know, landscape. I'm happy to play over that. Yeah, I think, I think you're right on, you know, the ones that look like, especially like desert or like snow, just a blank sheet of snow or a blank sheet of ocean. When it has a little of that artistic, like you said, the highlights and the lowlights in it, it really just seems to make it make it look more visually appeasing. At least, yeah. There's me. actually a couple cool ocean mats I've seen. There's uh, the Waterworld uh, titled mat from uh, Deep Cuts, and a couple other that are thoroughly artistic paintings um, that that I actually think look better than if we just had a big chunk of the ocean thrown on the mat, um, just because it, it gives you some some artistic interest to it. The desert ones I've been most drawn to always include a little bit of coast, but of course I think that's just because I'm thinking of, you know, Mediterranean theater stuff. But uh, that's just my own little thing on the desert mats. I like those uh, that have that coast piece on it. You're just prepping to hit the enemy toast. Wait, that's the coast. I'll take a little <laughs> yeah. bit more planning. All right. <laughs> so enough of our stupidity. Uh, babbling back and forth. Let's leap right into it. And let's talk to Steve a little bit about what he's been doing, a little bit about his background, a little bit as to why the heck we're even talking to him on the podcast, uh, and hopefully get some people some answers for some things they've been wondering about. So Steve, tell us a little bit about your gaming background. I mean, how did you end up becoming a Blood Red Skies player? Uh, what did you do for the previous years of your life? And uh, please tell us that you didn't start off in Warhammer 40k. No, you know what? I actually, I just love tabletop gaming in general. Uh, I think I said last time I was on, I actually play uh, miniature football, electric football, the old vibrating game that people yep, have yep. figured out how to make the guys actually run where you want them to. So I've been playing that for, uh, uh, man, probably like 20 years now, traveling around, playing that, playing in leagues. And I've always wanted to get into war gaming. And uh, I will say that a few years ago, I looked at some Warhammer miniatures and actually uh my local uh, game store does a paint and take night uh, once or twice a, a month that you can go in and they'll give you a space for and you can paint them. So uh, I used to take my daughter, uh, my daughter's there to paint that. And as I started checking that out, started seeing some flames of war stuff, started seeing some bolt action stuff. And uh, honestly, I was about ready to take the plunge into buying some bolt action stuff. And I was on YouTube and uh, next video down was uh a link for blood red skies and that was kind of uh that was kind of how the story goes you know there's the, the rest is history i saw a couple playthrough videos of blood red skies and just absolutely loved it and i've always been a huge fan of airplanes and everything that flies and world war ii aircraft in general so it was just a, a great fit well we've talked to you briefly uh in the past about things that you've done for for prototyping for using the talents you have for 3d modeling for laser cutting and etching and things like that. And and I always laugh because I, I love to roll people's uh, previous quotes out to them where you said to me, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really more of a prototyping versus production kind of guy. Uh, and now fast forward six months from probably the last time we talked and holy crap, you're working on a lot of different things that are ending up starting to be in production now. So um, has have you seen... Has your skills had to evolve? Have you had to um, kind of change how you look at things going from a world where you're making kind of one-off to now having to make something that is a repeatable process? Uh, well, my, my uh, professional background, uh, I actually went to school and I got a degree in what's called applied engineering. So it's like a, a little bit of a mix of like a mechanical engineering degree and uh, a product design degree. And, uh, Pussed around doing different engineering stuff. I worked in IndyCar racing for a little bit doing stuff. I actually owned a wood baseball bat manufacturing company for a couple of years and just kind of got bored with the day-to-day -day grind and uh, actually wound up getting into teaching and started teaching engineering. And it was really a great fit because uh, I teach 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, and I teach basically intro to engineering to kids and then they go on to high school and kind of decide, you know, what specialties they want to do. But what it does for me is it allows me to kind of dabble in all types of different types of engineering from, you know, like you said, 3D printing or 3D modeling to traditional woodworking, traditional welding, uh, even some graphic arts and photography type stuff. So it, it just really allows me to kind of 
explore and always learn new things. And uh, that's kind of where I've always been with, I enjoy the prototyping side of it. Cause once you have a product that is kind of finished and ready for production, then the production just becomes like a, a just a, a grind to keep pumping that same thing out where uh, the stuff I've been doing in blood red skies has very much been, you know, kind of getting it to the point where it's ready for production. And then somebody else is kind of taking that and, and running with it and doing their thing. Well, you know, it, it's interesting to me because, you know, going from areas like applied engineering and aviation that, that can also both be very similar fields, you know, where you have very strong personalities sometimes, people that kind of have ownership of, of their way of doing things. Uh, I remember when I was an instructor out at uh, the Marine Aviation Weapons Schoolhouse, we had a saying out there um, because, you know, we were all career instructors uh, for, for kind of what we done. We said, those who can do, those who can't teach. Oh, yeah, well, that's a famous line uh, to quote Jack Black from School of Rock, right? Those who can't, those who can do, those who can't teach, those who can't teach, teach Jim, right? That's exactly. The, that's the joke. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I had to roll that one out there because it's one of the funniest things to me is that that we always make that joke in whatever field you're in. But uh, one of the cool things about being in some of these instructional roles is you do get to sample a lot of different things, and you don't get stuck in the grind of. Oh, gee, time to make 400 more acrylic markers today. So I, I always feel bad for uh, my friends up at Litco every time I send a, a crazy new idea their way because I get one of two answers. They're either like, oh, that's awesome. We'll put it in our queue of things that we're going to uh, to try to do. Or when I know I've pushed their buttons too much, they're like, hey, how about you submit a custom order and we'll see if we can get to that for you, <laughs> which means they don't see the value of whatever I'm trying to do. But uh, but uh, we've we've relied on you a lot to uh, to try some things out and to uh, see what they look like. Uh, you've done a lot of the 3D printing and 3D rendering and, and designing of things. And I know we've seen some of the fruits of that inside Tabletop Sim. We've gotten to use your SM79 models, uh, your your Spitfire Mark V models. We've also had a chance to use the SM79s on the table. And Chris here isn't here to fluff you and tell you how wonderful you are and how much he loves you and wants to marry you for uh, for those SM79 models. Um, but they were pretty impressive. I, I got to admit, they were awesome to include the magnetic detachable torpedoes. So that was uh, that was just a level of detail that uh, that I don't think any of us were expecting, were we, Brett? No, they look really good and, and combined with Chris's painting ability. I mean, that's a, it's a good show when you see those on the table. Yeah, yeah, they were pretty neat. Well, yeah, so those those actually are going to be uh, coming up on ROC Works too, that SM79 yes. and everything. So those will be over there. I actually want to clean them up. When I sent that one to Chris, it was a little rough. And uh, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's tough for me to keep up because the stuff that Aiden is cranking out for ROC Works, man, he is just talk about talented. His sculpts are just phenomenal. I'm very much uh, playing second string quarterback on that deal. He his his uh you know his biplanes and his what is it the deal deal between or however you say I don't know help me out with that five I can't even pronounce that yes they, I mean they they <laughs> they are absolutely absolutely beautiful 3D models. So tell us a little bit uh, about the project and and how everything has kind of evolved uh, into a 3D file delivery as well as 3d printing and physical model delivery service yeah well that this is all kind of richard's uh you know richard's uh, brainchild he uh you know i did the uh i guess it was the the meteor and i did the uh, i believe it was a ki-45 for the ready room that ken Nat kind of put together and did a big group buy on him uh and so richard came to me said he had this idea to uh, kind of sell physical models as well as sell 3D models. And he was talking to Aiden about hopping on board with it. And uh, really, you know, it's funny because, it's, you know, you talk about that line between prototyping and production. Uh, the first time I used, you know, what we would call now a 3D printer, uh, like the generic term, right? Uh, the first time I used any type of rapid prototyping machine, it was in 2001. And uh just to see where it is now, it's it, back then it was very much prototyping. You know, you would design something in the computer and you would make what I would call like a strict prototype where if you were making a cell phone or you were making a part for a motorcycle, it would just look like it. It had no function whatsoever. It was just kind of like, this is a generic rough draft of what it's going to look like in 3D to where we're at now with 3D printers. There is a, a real reality that you can do 
uh, legitimate production level stuff with a 3D printer. And even some of these $200, $300 resin printers that you can put on your desktop, you can print Re, I mean, damn good quality for something like a miniatures tabletop game. Uh, so to have a service out there where you can buy the files as well uh, as the physical model, I, I think it's great. I think it's going to grow the game. Uh, talking to Richard, I, I'm not sure how feasible it is, you know, from like a marketing standpoint, you know, how many, mo you know, you sell one 3D file and that's basically you know, the keys to the kingdom, as you would say, right? Anybody can print hundreds or share your model, you know, so you're really kind of hoping that people use it kind of in good faith, you know, they'll print models for them, or maybe a couple friends will go together and buy it, but they're not going to start selling your model, you know, so we'll see how it goes. But I think overall, I think it's only going to further uh, blood red skies, especially in this time right now, where we're kind of a little bit of drought with uh, Warlord having a hard time getting stuff out there. Well, that's the interesting thing to me to see what Rockworks is doing because I've seen a number of Kickstarters out there that are, hey, give us this money, you'll get some STL files, you can go print your own stuff and you can scale it however you want. So we're going to scale it from to 28 mil, but if you want to scale it down and print it at 6 mil uh, for Adeptus Titanicus, you can do whatever you want. Uh, but I think I I'm just curious what the market is going to be. And I I've talked to Richard a few times about it. Uh, I think it's one of those things maybe we'll have to bring him on and, and discuss with him directly what, what he thinks the future of that is because I, I'll be honest, I haven't followed most of these Kickstarters that have gone on to see if they've actually fulfilled to the level of money they need to be able to give everybody in the community their their files uh, because it's it's certainly a lot of time and effort to be put in there. Um, but it's also something like you said, it's the keys to the kingdom. Once it's Once it's out, it's out. Uh, so it's uh, you got to kind of hope that people aren't just putting it up on a file share somewhere and that everybody who wants a uh, one 200 scale Mark V Spitfire <laughs> is now getting their tropical filter Spitfire from there. Yeah, you know, it's it's tough. And I'm sure there's ways that you can kind of encrypt it and do all that stuff. You know, I'm not re a real expert on that. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm really curious to see where it goes. I think it's really cool that these aren't just one two hundred models, right? I think it's really cool that they are specifically for blood red skies. So uh, you know they have the advantage stand hole in the bottom. We're being very careful about where we put that mounting hole so that it's you know has the correct center of gravity, and uh, you know they're geared towards blood red skies in the respect that we're making things that people have asked for. So uh, like you mentioned, the tropical filter Spitfire. That is ready to come out. Uh, it, I'm actually working on the uh, the adversary to that, the 109F-2 with the uh, tropical filters. So uh, I'm sure uh, you know Richard's going to listen to this and say, you said you were going to finish that you know, for a week, but I'm telling you now it's going to be done in the next day or two, and those two will be released together. Uh, you know, We got some buffaloes out there for some, you know, the infamous buffalo. So it's just cool that it's really geared specifically to blood red skies. Yeah, I think that's the nice thing is rather than converting somebody else's model, we at least have our own BRS-specific ones. And if you want to play Check Your Six with it, then you can drill out the hole, damn it. <laughs> well, Brett, really I know cool you had too. a couple questions. Yeah, just remarking on how awesome it is. It just shows you where there's de you know there's demand out there, but then you put that know-how together. You can deliver something that, you know, that something like buffaloes or, you know, maybe something as specific as a, 109F with a tropical filter on it may not be something that, you know, Warlord may ever be interested in mass producing, you know, because it's just maybe not a, a decent business return for him because maybe it's too specialized or too obscure, right? But it was only all over the freaking Mediterranean theater. Oh, wait, and the China, Burma, India theater. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, maybe. So, no, but, no but I, I, I get your point. I, but I do have to bring up one funny th point here for the listeners to understand is. When we look at the economies of scale and on some of these things with Warlord, their view is very skewed from everybody else's. And I, I can't explain it. Andy can't explain it. We've had multiple conversations in the last month with Warlord HQ about things people are asking for. And this is why I kind of want to anchor down this. And this is why I interrupted you, Brett. There are things from card packs to uh, specific models to to specific eras inside World War II that need to be dealt with, Warlord seems to think they have this sewed up with a nice little bow 
and that when Midway comes out, everything is just going to move along swimmingly. And Andy has really tried to interject and say, there's a lot you're forgetting. There's a lot of the game you're forgetting, i.e. people who don't want to go buy 17 different ace or aircraft packs just to get the theater, doctrine, trait, etc. cards that they want. Um, Warlord is not listening. And, and so I say that not as a, a spear thrown at the people at Warlord, but it's thrown at their business model. And the only way we're going to fix it is when the Blood Red Skies community, we can complain all we want inside the ready room, and it doesn't matter because the ready room's unofficial. We have to email info at warlordgames.com and say things like, hey, I really would love to have a pack full of theater and doctrine cards, and you know what? I'd pay like $25 for that. Uh, and And communicate that directly to them because otherwise – they're going to assume people are still just buying their airplanes to get to their cards or that there's no demand for Italians because nobody's beating down the door and saying, hey, we want Italians. Or there's no demand for buffaloes, an airplane they could they could produce. They could pretty much print money by selling buffaloes, in my opinion. And they have chosen not to, even though it could fill out six different air forces that I can think of. Uh, but whatever. <laughs> I digress. We'll let Rockworks make all the money on that one. <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you what's funny about it, too, is Richard, man, he is just a st- absolute stand-up guy, right? Because I went to him a couple times. He absolutely times. is. He's I was like, dude. I was like, Richard, like, let's make this P-38. Like, I want to make a P-38 because I want it. If I'm going to make it for me, get it on the website. You know, my my biggest my biggest thing, I love Corsairs. I love Hellcats. Uh yeah, I just absolutely love Pacific Theater. Oh, oh you uh, mean the Hellcat, the, the airplane I need for the new campaign yeah, they just released I, that I that I still don't have? You oh, know, sorry, I'm not bitter here. Not no, bitter I've said, here. <laughs> I've said to Richard, I've said, you know, like, you know, giving him like a couple planes. I said, dude, let's knock this out. Let's do this. Let's do this. And he's, no, you know, Warlord's going to come out with it. Warlord's going to come out with it. So he's just a stand-up guy. But somebody's, you know, eventually going to do it. And the interesting thing with, uh, uh, with like a war game is – nobody owns the intellectual rights to create a model of an airplane, right? So Warlord it's owns- It's not my space marines. You can't, <laughs> you can't copy my space marines? Yeah. No, Thank yeah. God you, you, you can't do that. <laughs> no, you know, Warlord owns the intellectual property rights to those cards, to those theater cards, to those eighths cards, to those plane cards, even the statistics on the cards. You know, I if they would release- a set of aircraft cards and a, a deck of aircraft cards and a deck of trait cards. I would buy that every year. You know, I would just say every year I'm going to commit to buying their up-to-date trait cards or up-to-date aircraft cards or up-to-date doctrine cards every single year. That'd be a re- recurring purchase. I would make. You heard it here, yeah. warlord. <laughs> you want to print money, print cards. <laughs> yeah. That'd be cool if they did it every year too. Maybe that, I would certainly buy that. Well, that and I think if it were a reasonable price and, and kind of like when Dan Verson was on and talking to us and said, okay, if you if you know what your standard card deck that's delivered by your printer is and you say, okay, I need to make it a run of 26 cards, you could decide what are your yearly cards, what kind of things do you want people to have to buy in the box because that's fine. There may be some airplanes you say, whatever, these are the entry-level airplanes. You need to buy these in a Warlord box to get these cards. And, and that, to me, is a reasonable business decision. But making somebody who is a RAF player yet wants certain theater and doctrine cards have to go out and buy Luftwaffe boxes just because that's how they broke it up, it doesn't really work. And and I think part of that is, and I, and I always hate to throw this spear at Warlord, but multiple people have told me this, that a lot of the people that make the decisions at Warlord – are not involved in playing the game constantly. They've played the game, they enjoy the game, they like it, but they're not the kind of people who are collecting the game and are, are you know, one force kind of collectors, where if you go out and you buy your U.S. Uh, aircraft and you suddenly go, crap, I'm still missing a bunch of, you know, Arctic weather cards, things that are in the Russian boxes, and you're like, I, I don't want to buy those, yet I still want to be able to use some of my aircraft for Battle of the Bulge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you need some of those, some of those cards. Yeah. And it, it, you know, it's tough too, because, uh, you know, again, not to kind of dig on warlord, like a big part of the hobby for me is the modeling side of it. Right. So I used to build scale models. So a big part of it for me is, you know, painting the models, decaling the models, detailing them, what have you. Uh, 
And when I got the starter starter kit, the models in the starter kit were, you know, I looked at it and I was like, man, I can make I can make better stuff like this than me to for for me to paint. So I haven't really used any of the Warlord models, even the starter kit ones. I just kind of made my own. And listening to like what DVG Games does, man, I want to be like Warlord. Start a Kickstarter. Decks of uh, you know, decks of Blood Red Skies cards. You could have them paid for before you even produce the stinking yeah. things. Yeah, and and people would buy them. I mean, I, I I don't know the numbers. I don't know how big the community truly is, but I would find it hard to believe that they couldn't fund something of that level through Kickstarter and just deliver a ton of cards. And and here's the the sad reality. Um, that is something Andy would love to do, but when Andy took the core game design and handed it to Warlord, then, like you said earlier, all of a sudden the iconography, the layout of the cards, all those things becomes a little bit of IP. And, you know, in Warlord's defense, they've been super supportive of us on the Lead Pursuit podcast and letting us go do our things and just saying, just don't interfere with what we're trying to do. Don't go out there and try to compete against our cards. Just fill in the gaps. And, and Andy and Warlord have been good about giving us the information to do just that. Hey, Steve, I don't even collect American, but uh, if you made a P61 at ROC Works, I might start a collection. <laughs> do not make a P61. I will be broke buying those. <laughs> I want a Black Widow so bad, but never mind. I think that might be my single favorite aircraft from World War II. Like as a kid, you know, those models were so cool and just the pictures of them, everything. I don't even know a whole lot about it, but man, I just think it's this coolest looking World it War II It is. Aircraft. And, and, you know, I'll dime Steve out here up there at, at military uh, or Mid-Atlantic Aviation Museum, their, um, their aircraft that's, that's partially being built. Uh, it just, it breaks my heart that that thing's not put together right now. Um, Cause I've, I've, I've watched that, uh, fuselage get worked on and everything else. Um, God, I'd love to see one of those finished. Yeah, I got to tell you, it's funny. I was actually just going to say that. So Mid-Atlantic uh, Aviation Museum at uh, Reading Airport is only about, it's a, I don't know, 30-minute drive for me. It's like a 10-minute flight. They have a little restaurant there. I'll fly in sometimes just to grab breakfast. Uh, they have been working on that piece. I remember my dad took me there to an air show probably in like 1987, and they were working on that P-61. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Nothing happens fast at MAM. I, I, I laugh at those guys. I, I love them. I love them to death. I've done photography workshops up there, and I love their collection. I love their Avenger while we're talking about uh, cool airplanes that we don't have in Blood Red Skies. Um, but, uh, yeah, nothing happens blazingly fast in that collection. But but it's still – there's so many cool things up there. You know, I did actually – I actually did get to see a, P, uh, a Black Widow at uh, the uh, uh, National Museum of the Air Force this this uh last weekend though and it's oh did you call time. ahead did you make sure it was uh, open before you visited you know what we're you know we're gonna clear that up right now okay because this is kind of i was going to watch come on don't don't no, no, no. let chris get no, one no. over on you no we're gonna we're, we're gonna clear this up okay i'm glad i'm glad you said that i was going to washington dc for something different I knew the museum was closed, but on the website, it said we will be opening soon. So my hotel was like two blocks behind the Air and Space Museum. I was like, oh, I'm just going to walk up there, see if they have an update of the website. As I'm walking up to the museum, there are like these huge banners that are like as big as a football field on all sides of the museum. Quoting the banners, they literally say, yes, come in, we're open with an exclamation point. And then I get to the front, hear those banners are because they're doing like a $10 million renovation project and had nothing to do with COVID. So, but I'm I hear to see airplanes. <laughs> Why can't I see the airplanes? There's supposed to be some cool airplanes here. But, yeah, uh, yeah sorry. No, you you got nothing. <laughs> yeah. Close. Yeah. But the, the Black Widow man seeing that thing in person, that, that is, that is a badass looking airplane. No doubt. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of cool aircraft I'd love to see restored. It's one of, my love-hate relationships I have as a photographer with flight facilities and aircraft restorers because there's times that I really want to cheer them on and there's times I look at them and go, you should just melt it down for scrap now and it would save you the money that you're going to put in and still not have a flyable airplane at the end of it because it's it's just so hard. People are, as you say, uh, you know, they're, they're having to craft brand new parts for some of these aircraft and what we call it in the, in the aviation industry I'm in, call it additive materials because if you call it 3D printing, then no one will want to buy your part. Um, but they're having to, to make these things 
uh, one off and then uh, then build them and, and have the additive materials machines put them together so they can actually make a couple of them to get three airplanes or four airplanes restored. So it's it's pretty interesting to watch how that all happens these days. Yeah, I'll tell you another funny thing too, kind of just the area where I live. Uh, my home airport actually is on the site of the Volte aircraft plant. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. So they actually, Volte, Volte aircraft, never heard of them. No idea. Yeah, Volte aircraft actually built uh, dive bombers and uh, during World War II, during early World War II. I believe there was one called the Vengeance and there was one called something else. But they actually had a contract to compete with uh, the TBM-3, I believe it was, uh, you know, torpedo bomber. And uh, the TBM-3 actually won out over their torpedo bomber prototype. So that's actually, they have some neat, obscure aircraft there as well, if you're interested in those. Yeah, I would I would describe Volte aircraft as obscure uh, because it's like we were talking about a couple episodes previous. There, there are entire genres of World War II aircraft that you never know about till you open one of these archives of all the aircraft of World War II, and you're like, I have never heard about the Volte A31 Vengeance. What the hell is that thing? <laughs> so it's it's kind of interesting. I know some of them were sold lend-lease to a variety of people, so there's always there's always cool modeling you can do there. So uh, so Rockworks, if you guys want to go out and, and model some of these uh, airplanes, knock yourself out, and we can then uh, put them in the game for however they uh, however they were played. All right, let's count, let's shift from this uh, 3D printing world to the to the other world where we've benefited from your modeling design, uh, tabletop sim. I know you did a lot of work for us to really assist us to get the tabletop sim to where we wanted it, uh, making some advantage stands that flipped both directions, uh, and then giving us some models. So, so how was your tabletop sim experience? What have you enjoyed and what have you disliked about playing Blood Red Skies and tabletop sim? Oh, man, I've got to tell you, it's it's really is no. It's just been awesome. There's nothing else to really say. I mean, I'm sure I could kind of pick stuff apart. Uh, not so much the Blood Red Skies aspect of it, but Tabletop Sim in general uh, is just kind of a clunky program. I mean, they are making improvements. It's a little bit of a cumbersome program, but oh man, I mean, talk about just being able to get on the table, get some models down play some games i mean especially during like this pandemic right like where where are you going to play games uh and even talk about a great tool just for kind of like learning the rules learning the flow of play trying out different strategies right uh i mean certainly not a replacement right for the tabletop game because you know the modeling and the hands-on and the people coming together and, and certainly that's the whole aspect of it right but uh I mean, wow. Talk about just t tabletop sim has really opened a lot of doors. I mean, a lot of the campaign stuff, a lot of the, uh, I, w I would say me getting into the tabletop sim side of it has only made me like dive further into the, the actual physical tabletop side of blood red skies. Just, you know, you get to kind of try out models before you start painting them or buying them or, uh, with the whole campaign thing, it's funny. I have never had any interest in a Spitfire, in a Hurricane, in a in any type of RAF airplane, and now I'm sitting and, here. And now you like being a cheater, don't you? Yeah, look who's talking, man. Look at that tight turn. Tight man. turn is the way to go. <laughs> no, but you know, now I'm painting. I'm, I mean, I'm painting up. Uh, you know. Uh, a couple must, uh, a couple Mustang Mark ones to have. You know, for my physical tabletop. A couple. Uh, uh, you know, Spitfire Squadron, a couple Hurricanes. I have. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, Tabletop Sim has been awesome. And I will say that Aiden, who's been releasing a lot of the models for ROC Works, uh, talking to him, it looks like we are going to progressively kind of put those out for Tabletop Sim. So we're going to kind of make them Absolutely. a little lower lower quality so they get a little better in the game, they work a little better in the game. But, uh, I mean, the ROC Works and having those models and growing them, it, just growing that Tabletop Sim community. I mean, again, uh, talk about just a great community of Blood Red Skies, right? Just kind of putting tons of effort in to kind of further, further the game just – really uh, really on their own merit basically yeah i've i've enjoyed talking uh with richard and, and saying hey man what can what can you guys do to help us out 
because obviously having some of those models in a lower res version really kind of fills in the gaps to to places that we have cards and we just don't have models, just don't have the ability to put them into the Malta scenario or whatever. And because they're not official Warlord cards for a lot of these aircraft, then I can release them whenever I want. And, and I don't have to ask Mother May I. Uh, but uh, I'll make the point again, Warlord, if you're listening, people would love to have access to a huge variety of cards via tabletop sim. And it pretty much would sell your models right there. Because, I, you know, Steve, you talk about it. I laugh the number of times I've played uh, different aircraft or uh, even play-tested stuff in tabletop sim. It does not replace the physical models. It just augments it. And so it, it's it's just kind of like leading you along. It, it gives you a little bit of a, little bit of a filler, a little bit of, of enough uh, to, to carry you on to the next time you're like, I'm enjoying playing with these virtual models, but I really want to put 12 Spitfires out against 12 109s and have have a big battle um, because that's just there's there's still something to be said for pushing the painted and finished models around the table. Well, I am desperately hoping that I can get to uh, Indianapolis because Brett and I have played, you know, I mean, uh, hours and hours. I mean, probably in the hundreds of hours of tabletop sim, and we got this campaign going. So I, I'm definitely trying hard to get my campaign squadron painted up, make the stars align so I can get to Indianapolis and actually get on the board with, you know, some physical models that we've been playing through in this campaign. Absolutely. That, that would be a lot of fun to do out there and to, to be able to play those different parts of the campaign and play them physically. Uh, what I will remind everybody is that at least the airlines have all been pretty good for anyone who's planning on flying. Uh, they're still offering, uh, the, the usual COVID, uh, uh, vouchers if you end up having to cancel your flight they'll just uh, re-roll it for the next year uh the hotel is fully cancelable right up until the day prior uh and we are offering i realize it says cancelable until the week prior if something derails indianapolis and gathering of eagles the day prior we're going to refund everybody their money we get that um but uh, I just don't want anyone to think that there's there's anything other than full refundability. So go out there, sign up, uh, give us your information so we know who's going to show up and, and how many we can plan to attend. Uh, and then we'll uh, plan on rolling some dice out there. I think it'll be a good time. I mean, I'll look forward to somebody else beating Brett all the time instead of me. So that should be good. Come on, Brett, not even a defense uh, from you. <laughs> yeah, I was laughing so hard it took me a second to get off mute. Because <laughs> uh, I think... You kind of got scalded a little bit last time we played. You had to bring Chris along. It was only Chris and his C202s that did it for you. That's you know? true. He did do all the work. Yeah. <laughs> he did all the hard work there. You just blundered your uh, aircraft in there to miss the target uh, between three uh, three of your twin-engine bombers and six uh, single-engine bombers. Well, let's talk a little bit about campaign. So I know the two of you have been working really hard to, to create – uh, I would say something from nothing, but it isn't totally from nothing. It's it's had a lot of inputs at the beginning from uh, from Andy, from Richard, uh, from the guys over at Two Fat Lardies. A lot of a lot of different direction and things to build off of. Um, Steve, give me your elevator pitch about your campaign system. Yeah, I, I'll, again, I mean, I think it's going to just be incredible uh to see where it started where we were kind of we kind of took two fat lardies and the sandstorm campaign and kind of meshed them together and played with that and then kind of got to the point where we we're like man this would be cool if we could add this and then we put more of the two fat lardy stuff in and then we kind of got to a point where people were kind of asking like do you have anything compiled of uh, you know, what you're actually using, what parts you're using. And I'm sure Brett, you know, Brett could speak more to that. Uh, but just the evolution of it to the point where it is now where, uh, I mean, certainly you can see similarities between both of them, uh, but it's it's taken a life of its own. And again, to have something that's written out specifically for Blood Red Skies uh, and just uh, the production value of it. I mean, I never envisioned this kind of being like an actual printable book, but where we're at now with it, where it looks like it's going to print out, it's going to be about the same styling and format as the airstrike. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I think, I think guys are going to love it. If you're playing, if you're playing in a game group and you're meeting regularly to play, this is the way you got to play. And I mean, Brett can speak more to what he, he did. He did the heavy lifting on this, so he can, he can kind of take it from there. 
Brett, tell us about your wonderful invention. Uh, yeah, well, just like Steve, I mean, just like Steve said, it, it started out as just a hand jam thing we were doing because we were playing remotely, right? So Steve lives in Pennsylvania, I live in Florida. We were playing on TTS, and you know, we started out just by playing one-off games, but we both kind of had a similar thought: like, wouldn't this be fun if we could make this into something where the games progressed and were sequential and you know affected each other, that kind of thing? Obviously, that's campaign play, right? And there was some campaign play stuff out there, some for Blood Red Skies in, that had limited scope, mostly like Sandstorm. You know, it's it's super fun and well thought out, but has its own limits and constraints. Uh, Andy had some uh, campaign play rules and ideas that was on Ready Room as a file, and uh, that had some great ideas that we were able to incorporate. And then Steve mentioned the two fat lardies thing, so it's sort of a game agnostic or system agnostic set of rules. I think it's mostly for um, Bag the Hun, but uh, you know it was written in a way where you could apply this to other systems, right? So literally, it it was a stack of mix-matched photocopy pages with dog-eared corners and sticky notes and you know staples in all the wrong places and where we had made our own marginal notes and made our own translations so it made sense for our games and it, and it kept evolving as we played you know some things worked some things didn't and so yeah. kind of like an op order on day 10 of the exercise. Yes. It's, Pretty much you'd filed like 17 different amendments to it and, <laughs> and dog-eared things and cut and pasted and forgot to change dates. Well, it was working good for us, but as we, you know, as we played more, it wasn't, it, it wasn't anything really wrong with all of that. It's just, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that was easy that I could just hand off to somebody, to a stranger and say, Hey, go play like we do. And we discussed it a little bit at the virtual gather of, gathering of eagles, and the resounding response was, "Hey, do you guys have anything that you could share with us?" And I was kind of like, uh, uh, "Not really." This I is, have uh, this pile well, of poop. Would you like to play with it? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think you know what we had was something that you know we could barely translate for ourselves. Anyway, so that's the genesis of it. And like Steve has said, we've put a lot of work, a lot of time. We've 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 set aside our normal game time, certainly our normal hobby time to pump hours and hours of time to putting this thing together. And we're very close to having something that we could share to others. And I think beyond it just being, you know, a printed out PDF, it, it potentially, I think our goal now is we see the potential that you could get your hands on an actual booklet that's, you know, like the si same, similar size and feel as the airstrike book just to give somebody some reference of like the, the kind of a production quality we're expecting that has everything you need for playing like we do and it's got and there's been a lot of collaboration a lot of smart guys have helped us to uh, that's get awesome. where we are that's really awesome i think that's something that the the wargaming community doesn't always like to admit that they want but that they really enjoy a little bit of the role playing and a little bit of the campaign continuity because you kind of want to emotionally invest in your pilots and you, you want to know what's going on between the missions. And we've talked about it with the DVG team, uh, whether it's about zero leader or about Hornet leader or phantom leader that, that sometimes what some people see as excessive rules and excessive uh, Chrome is really what people enjoy. And that sure, we all love playing a dogfight game or we love doing airstrikes, but we also really like to emotionally invest in the pilots, in the crews, and in what happens between all the missions. So I think you guys have a pretty neat product there. I'm uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, I know last time, Brett, you told me how many pages it was. I'm like, oh, my God, I have to read another long manual because I don't think I've still even read Airstrike cover to cover. <laughs> yeah. Well, we did write it with the idea of that you could tailor it to your needs, right? So not even – just game length. So for what I mean by that is, you know, hey, look, you, you want to play a string of five games with a buddy that represents a certain battle or a certain period in the war? Fine, do that. Let's say you want to play Luftwaffe from, you know, 1940 all the way to the end. Hey, you could do that too and everywhere in between. And we also writ, wrote it with this idea of generosity, right? Like kind of, you could, you could go just, you could use just this and be happy or if you care to, add these things. And so we've provided these things for those who want to like put all that in. That's how we started. We, when we started playing, we actually left out a lot of things because we're like, Oh, I don't know. That seems a little intimidating. That's kind of a lot of stuff. And I don't want to do a lot of book, book work and that kind of stuff. 
But as we started playing just a few games, we're like, man, you know, I really want to add these other elements in. And anyway, it's evolved and all that stuff is now in there. But it doesn't mean that you can't tailor it to play the game you want to play, right? We've tried to design it in a way that's user-friendly in terms of like how you navigate through the thing so that you could pick it up without necessarily needing to read the entire book to understand how it's supposed to work. It's sort of like a checklist format, if you will. So you just go step one, step two, on down the list. But also with, okay, hey, if you if this is enough for you, skip this portion and go here. Or, hey, look, if you want to do the full Monty, go to step five and continue, whatever. So that's kind of the concept that we've tried to stick by and also giving as much uh, airing on the side of generosity when it comes to like aircraft availability and things like that. There's, there's all kinds of things to choose from in there, but trying to give you as much as you want, but also make it so it's scalable. Yeah. I think that's super important is it, you do not have to read through the whole thing. It's very much a linear process. So do the first set of pages do this set of pages after the game, do this set of pages. So it's like you said, it's very much a checklist format. And man, I'll tell you what, when this started the pandemic, I was like, yeah, this is kind of cool. Make some names for some guys, kind of dorky, a little, you know, it's kind of a little Dungeons and Dragons ish, a little too much for me, but I'll tell you what, I got this one pilot right now, Spitfire pilot, section leader. His name's Monty Oxel. If he ever gets shot down, I'm going to have to use my bereavement days at work, man. I am so attached to this guy. I, I, if he gets shot down, it's going to be a bad day. So pretty much you guys have created Blood Red Skies, the role-playing game. Nice work, dorks. Yes, nice work. that's what we've done. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, I think there's always an element that people want to emotionally invest in it. I think there's always also a little bit of shame for, for being war gamers who get suckered into playing something role-playing game-like. Uh, so, so that's always funny to me. But I, I think it will be fun for people to go out there and, and play either short campaigns or... You know, they and their buddies can play through, you know, a long part of the war and see how the squadrons evolve and see how they change. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it takes things beyond just why am I pushing the same airplanes around the same scenarios with the same people getting sometimes different results? And, and what, what do those results mean? Who who really cares whether he beat me by two victory points or six victory points? Oh, wait, except those victory points were aircraft that were shot down or just damaged with boom chits. And so those have dramatically different uh, results in a campaign setting. One, one thing I will say in support of campaign play, Steve and I both started playing this and we had a fair number of games under our belt. I mean, we, we knew how to play the game and we were fairly comfortable, comfortable and confident in different rules situations. But by playing the campaign system, what we found is no two games were the same. And we were encountering rule situations that we just had never encountered before. And we learned so much more about the game to such greater depth. And especially because in the campaign system, playing with the full card mechanic is a big part of it, uh, you know, with all the historical theater and doctrine cards. And so there were things coming up that you often, when you're just doing a quick one-off game, don't really come up or, you know, you just don't get to exercise. And we were doing that. And I found that we, we learned a lot every single game we played. Well, you're right. Cause it, it depends on the scenario. Steve is going to try to cheat a different way, depending on which scenario you're playing. Right. Oh, yeah, Steve, you're not right, going to jump in right, on that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, again, with the, with the, you know, the bash Steve weekly segment on, uh, it is. And, and now know, that we have you here, we have podcast. to take opportunities to do that this. Was, that was just, you know, nobody mentions that I, you know, played five uh, priority target games before that and didn't get a single hit on any target. So when I finally realized, hey, I could put my bombers in high cover, and he just happened in that game to put his cruiser on the edge of the map. You know, he didn't have to put his cruiser there. Nobody made him put that there. You know, you know, all all I'm hearing is Andy Chambers said I could do it, therefore it's not cheating. That's that's all I'm hearing right now. <laughs> you know, we, we talked it over before the game. It was all totally legit. It is it is kind of it is a funny thing to joke about, though. Well, you know, and, you know, and here's funny. the thing. I thought I, it, I, I thought I, it was I love, one of those. Go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say I I love making fun of people's play styles. 
because sometimes people take themselves super seriously. And this is this is where Trevor and I sometimes laugh about the competitive scene and the the weird kind of competitive scene that Blood Red Skies has because inevitably there are what other people would consider exploits or different rules interpretations that you just when you see it on the board you're like Oh shit, how did I not read it that way? God, am I an idiot? And of course, all of our first impulses, that's cheating. There's no way you can do that. And Andy just sits there and goes, No, I already thought of that 10 years ago. And yes, that's allowed, you know? So you just suck it up and go, I'm an idiot. <laughs> you know, I thought it was, it was funny uh, because when, when I was kind of re- we were reading through the setup procedure, when it kind of dawned on me you could do that. And I said that, and it was kind of one of those times in the English language where, two people say the same words, but they mean totally different things where I was like, fuck, I can put my bombers in high cover. And yeah. Brett was like, fuck, <laughs> you can put your bombers in high cover. You know, it was like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and the, this has happened a couple of times recently talking to people, uh, as they were doing, uh, not priority target. Uh, I always forget which one it is. The way home. They were doing uh, you know some of those scenarios and reading through it and and how people interpret uh, the wording of different things about where you can put high cover and and what you have to do with your intercepting uh, aircraft. And then I'll be honest. One of the problems of airstrike now versus airstrike when you read it off the uh, off the ready room is there's a lot of caveats in there about jet stuff because it is really sculpted to try to make sense of all the World War II era and Vietnam era jets. And so sometimes you think you know how you're supposed to set up one of these airstrike scenarios. You go, oh, crap, there's a caveat for jets. Son of a bitch, I didn't think about that. Yeah, and the the other thing, man, I don't know, the whole high cover mechanic, it is just, I I don't want to say it's overpowered because I know, you know, keeping planes high, trailing a plane high and diving in on them was like a deadly, deadly tactic. But it is, it's a deadly tactic in the game. And honestly, I don't even know how to defend that just because they immediately come in advantage so they can plop on the board right behind you. You know, it's it, yep. it's deadly. Yep. Well, and so especially, I, I think a lot of the scenarios have to sculpt very well about which board edges you can use. But I'll be honest, as we did our Vietnam playtesting, we kind of co-opted the high cover mechanic and realized that if we made a doctrine card that behaved like high cover, but the aircraft that came in still could only come in neutral or disadvantaged or something other than advantaged, um, it gave you an option for those slashing rear quarter missile attacks that you see in the Vietnam War. And and all of a sudden the the light bulb went on for us and and those of us on the US playtesting team were like, holy crap, now I don't have F4s and MiG-21s getting stuck in this stupid head-to-head battle that isn't how the, the events actually happened. Now I can be the North Vietnamese player and I can play this card and I can pop out of, quote, high cover behind the F-4s uh, and I'm immediately in a missile envelope, but, oh, geez, I better not get in a turning fight because that's not going to work out well for any of us. Yeah, and, ju- and just the way high cover works in the mechanics of the game, right, where if you just kind of wait for a guy to get seven or eight inches from the board edge, right, you pop out in high cover, so you're going before him, you make a minimum movement, stay in shooting range, stay behind him, hit him again, right? It's just, you know, and it's funny because when you read about, like, World War One air combat, you know, the high cover was like, that's how you got your kills in World War One, right? You didn't let them see you you got behind them and you killed them and as you progress through more the more modern eras of air combat it seems like that became less of a i mean i don't know just what i read i'm not an expert but it seems like that became less of a priority so it'll be interesting to see how that does translate to the to the vietnam and the jet rules yeah i I think there's a lot of cool things in blood red skies for how you use high cover uh and to be quite honest i i I try to remind people i'm like just because you see a high cover marker on the edge of the board you better treat it like a real airplane. Don't don't think you can turn tail to it. Don't think you can even fly out in front of it. Think as if that were an airplane, because like you said, they're going to move on. They're going to come in advantage. They're going to move probably before you in the next phase after they come on. And then they're going to shoot you twice, <laughs> which is always frustrating. Well, we've been chatting for about an hour here. Uh, the lightning and thunderstorms are getting uh, worse here. It's probably the same for Brett in Florida. So we probably better wrap this up before we totally lose the podcast. 
Uh, Steve, where can people find you out on the internet besides finding all of your wonderful models that are out there that they can either purchase or have printed and sent to them? How can they get in touch with you? Uh, you know, honestly, Facebook Messenger is probably probably the best way to get in touch with me. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you have any ideas for something cool, like Doug said, I'm much more into the prototyping uh, aspect of it. You know, I've actually been working on something for uh, uh, Fights On, uh, working on the ROC stuff, working on some stuff with Ken for the Ready Room, the ROC works. But if you have an idea for something or just want to kick something around, target markers, graphic design stuff, any laser cutting, 3D printing, anything like that, be best way is just sh shoot me a message on the uh, Ready Room or on Private Messenger. I'm going to hit you with one right now, Steve. I just got my order today for a whole bunch of GHQ stuff. So I have all the rolling stock and the artillery position stuff and tanks and some ships. But, man, I could not find anything suitable for a rail yard, armored train, bunker complex, headquarters, or a radar insulate. Well, no, that's not true. Uh, Fights On did have a radar, like a uh, – what's that called? A uh, Oh, I can't remember the name of it. Chain Home. Chain they have home, the Chain yeah. Home radar. Yeah. So that would be good. But those others, there's, there's some, uh, some areas where if you see something out there we could use, uh, I'd be on the hunt for that. Yeah, cool, man. Uh, armored train would definitely be, definitely kind of be a cool little target marker there. Well, awesome, guys. Well, thanks for jumping on the podcast and taking some time to talk uh, about campaign gaming, about uh, prototyping, modeling, and uh, and all of the fun things that we've got coming out here soon. Like a lot of people have said, it's a it's a great and golden age of wargaming right now. I think for Blood Red Skies, the game is really kind of hitting its stride between Warlord releases, things the community is doing, uh, and we're really getting it to the point where it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of neat things that you can spend your money <laughs> and your hobby time on uh, and uh, rabbit holes you can go down. But thanks, guys. I appreciate you coming on tonight, and thanks for taking the time to talk to the podcast. Thanks.